But for me, uh, that informed a lot of my strategy, which is try and save up to buy the best assets, the top quartile assets in the class you're going to buy, whether it's property or stocks. And if it is property, like, you know, the, the, the premium areas or the premium parts of the areas you're going to invest in. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sham and in this episode, we're back with the remarkable John Fong, the Chief Revenue Officer of Domain. With over 20 years of investing experience, he unboxes his own time-proven strategy, how two Cairns properties paid for all his business school expenses and the secret of how he went from zero to 10 properties in the first decade of his investing journey. Reminiscing the relationship with his grandmother, Fong elaborates on the lasting impact she has had on his own journey in life and in investing. Yeah, I was very, very close to my grandmother. Uh, very, very close. Uh, she, you know, she um, she was the one who, who I guess raised me most. But particularly my mum and my mum and dad both working. Uh, so, uh, so she was the chauffeur, the cook. You know the childcare, the disciplinarian. Uh, she'd be the one while I, you know while I was watching piano, while I was playing piano, looking at the clock. You know with a uh, with with a I don't think it was an actual stick, but like a threat in one hand and and Tim Tams in the other. If I could complete half hour piano practice, which led to other you know obesity related problems as a child. You know, and my lack of skill in sports. So uh, these are she was very much you know, and, and even when when I had turned eighteen and I, and I lived at home. With her, uh, we had a pretty cool arrangement where we moved out of our family home and moved to a set of apartments. Me and my sister and my granny lived in one apartment, and we helped to look after her and she looked after us. And my mum and dad were in a separate apartment, so I was extremely close uh, to granny. She was very much, uh, you know, she was very much a second mother, you know, to me. And so she had very, very strong ideas about what great looked like, and she would, in classic, you know, ethnic migrant grandmother style, uh, pass them on to me, uh, whether it's about piano, my studies, or in this case, about property. Uh, so, you know, when, when she spoke, I listened. And by that time, I was critically evaluating. But actually, the book we read together and the TV shows we watched together about it made a lot of sense. With more than two decades under his belt, Fong shares his family's investing practices, touching on how his dad and family were central in developing the strategy he has been using to accumulate properties over the years. Me, my dad, and my sister, and my family kind of stumbled upon a few investment properties that mostly worked pretty well for us. Uh, you know, there was a lot of, this is back in the late 90s, early 2000s, Australians have always loved property. I think at that time, there was a, a, an appreciation of the power of not even negative gearing, but I'll call it positive gearing. I'm not sure what the title is. But the idea is that you accrue cash flow positive properties that have a meaningful chance of equity upside. You invest in those. They pay for themselves. The, uh, the, the rental pays for the interest. Uh, you, you still leverage as much as you can. You put down 20%, leverage 80%. But then as the capital gains appreciates, you invest that capital gains in getting another loan for another house. And then for me at the time too, I was started off you know, earning not that much money as a scholarship student, but then went to consulting and things like that. My income increased, I'd say exponentially right over the course of that next 10 years. So that was our kind of thinking, myself, my dad, and my, my sister in particular at the time. And so we started off with one property, but we were very fortunate through a combination of capital gains and, and me getting you know, job graduation jobs that uh, we were able to buy new properties pretty quickly. 
And we had a theory that we would not buy in Sydney because by that time it was already quite expensive. You know, apartments were cheap, but, you know, even then a house is $500,000. You could buy one, but that'd be it, right? And, and ideally you'd live in it as well. Instead of doing that, we decided to go to capital cities, right? The whole idea of let's find capital cities, the universities, the belief that both migrants and people will continue to flow into cities. We didn't buy in the heart of the city. We didn't buy the most expensive areas, but we typically look for three-bedroom, two-bathroom houses within a 15 to 20-minute drive of the city. Uh, and we identified a few areas, uh, in particular Perth, Adelaide, Canberra, uh, the Gold Coast, uh, and Cairns were some of our key areas, as opposed to Sydney and Melbourne, you know, in contrast. Uh, we were pretty lucky at the time. We'd open up the real estate magazines at the time and then just look at postcodes where there had been a good amount of capital growth last 12 months. Very similar to how people tend to pick growth stocks, which is you don't try and buy at the bottom, you buy on the way up. And you kind of go, great, we're going to effectively do spread betting there. But we're not just going to you know, buy at random. We're going to go over there and really familiarize ourselves with those places. You know, uh, in particular, there's a place like Armydale uh, in Perth. Uh, these are places, particular areas of Cairns, places like Elizabeth in, in Adelaide, right? So, you know, my dad did a lot of that work. And he, you know, being a real estate agent himself, he was able to really find a lot of favor with great property managers, you know, and, and, and understand the nuances of the city, not just like, great, we're going to buy a house in Perth. You know, but actually we're going to find the street, you know, the suburb, the school that makes sense. Because some of these places you're buying at that, at that time, $100,000 price point, that could get you maybe the next place, which is where, great, all the doctors, professionals are going to move here. Or if you buy the wrong place, it becomes, you know, potentially pretty rough areas, right? So it's, it's a judgment call you've got to make. We were very fortunate that the first few bets we made, particular Perth with this place called Armydale uh, and then Cairns, we did really, really well. And this is the first five or six years of our investing uh, we were lucky that those places we invested in and those places took off, right? You'd, you'd see the, they would double in price within three or four years. Just, you know, you couldn't predict those kind of gains, uh, but they really played into our strategy so that we were able to go from, you know, one property for, you know, me, by the time I was in business school, I had like 10 different properties right in Australia, right? These aren't giant houses or anything like that, but they're, you know, houses which a lot of them would double or triple in value. So I was very, very fortunate, you know, first five or 10 years, you know, going from zero to one to 10 and that was actually a lot of what I was to pay for my expenses at business school. Business school in the States is, is very expensive, even though I had a scholarship and, and things, things of that nature. Uh, you know, you're still talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. But the capital gains in two Cairns properties paid for all of that. Wow, that's phenomenal. So just very, very, very lucky. And a lot of the foresight of my dad and my granny to get us early into this. Working overseas did not stop Fung from investing in property. In fact, in the period he found himself in the US, already investing, pursuing his two master's degree and fulfilling his calling in the corporate field, he still had his eyes on Australia's property space. You know, by that time, you know, we'd you know, had a bunch of properties in Australia. Um, when it became clear that I was not just going to, my intention with Australia was to move back. You know, I thought it'd be great. I'll do two years in, in the US for business school and I'll move back. It's like, oh, actually, cool opportunity in Europe. Let me stay there longer. I was like, great, I'll be in Europe in a few years and I'll move back. I'm like, oh, actually, cool option to the US. Yeah, by the time, you know, I was now 10 years into it. I was 10 years, I was settled in the US. I had a wife, you know, who was American. I was like, okay, like, we're probably not going anywhere anytime soon. So around that time, this is almost 10 years ago, started shifting my investments from Australia into the US, uh, you know, partly from a taxation point of view. It's, it's a bit tricky if you're, you're investing in multiple places. And also just because Silicon Valley became my backyard. Yes. So that's where we wanted to buy a family home, and we did. Those were the areas that we were now most familiar with, you know, like the areas where my wife lived and you know, Silicon Valley was, was my neighborhood, right? So that enabled me to get local knowledge of local real estate agents, 
local catchments. You know, and then with my business school friends, uh, real estate investing is a very big thing in the US. It's actually a, a career that, you know, uh, it, it's one of the highest paid careers in the US, not to necessarily be a real estate agent. There's some very successful ones there, but, you know, to go into real estate property investing, you know, go and build hotels or build schools or things like that. So some of my best friends in the US were in real estate investing, and we did a lot of that investing together, you know, in terms of syndicates and, you know, uh, things of that nature. So that allowed me to invest in what I knew best, which was single family homes. Uh, we would do that for ourselves, but also invest in some commercial properties like you know, fast food shops, you know, as well as invest in some syndicated things such as hotels. So that became a lot of my investing starting 10 years ago. Uh, and, you know, that continues to this day with the exception of we've purchased our, our primary family residence in Australia. Uh, so that, that happened once we moved back. But yeah, my, I'm kind of spread most of the US and a bit in Australia now. With a noteworthy diverse portfolio, Fong certainly made sure he invested wisely abroad. After asking him if he purchased any more property since coming back to Australia, he gives this answer. No, just our, our family home. Uh, you know, with uh, we we obviously it's 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 uh, favorably from a taxation point of view to put as much as possible into that. Uh, you know, and so and and frankly, with house prices, you need every, every dollar you can get. You know, if you want to live in even the places that we all grew up or are, are now much more expensive relative to when our, when our parents purchased. So my parents are still here. My sister's still in the area. So we want to be on City's North Shore and, and that's where we've been fortunate enough to purchase last year. Now, looking back at his fast experiences, as a more well-informed investor, Fong describes two of the most challenging incidents he has encountered during the property road. Incidents which inevitably shaped the investing philosophy he has today. Yeah, I'd say I've been pretty lucky. Been pretty lucky. Um, I've been pretty lucky that the first bets went really well, and then by the time some of the bad things happen, they're not devastating because they're a percentage of the portfolio, not the whole thing. Uh, I think the the two probably biggest challenges I took away were I mentioned that we purchased one in Adelaide, uh, a place called Elizabeth. Uh, those of you who follow Adelaide property, which is you know, some proportion of your of your listeners, will know that that is where the old General Motors Holden factory was, and that was our big bet as the as the people made it. And in, in retrospect, that, that closed down. It was propped up by tax subsidies. And eventually, after a while, the government pulled out support and, and Holden moved away and moved the manufacturing overseas, right? So a classic, you know, government propped up, um, you know, a town. And, and that town obviously has struggled, right? It's, it's not been the same since, right? And so I think as a result, that's an area, area where, you know, it makes sense to go based on people magnets, like universities, like employers. You just want to judge the volatility of that. For me, I had three properties there at the time. And you know, I was fortunate that, you know, I didn't lose money, but, you know, I got capital growth and it all disappeared. And, and then, you know, the, the related social problems and challenges like that, it's very tough for a community when an employer pulls out that way, right? So I think that for me is, you know, that's probably a reasonable bet to take as part of a portfolio. But if that's like you're putting all your eggs in that basket, unless you're going to live there and it's your primary residence, it's, it's a bit more dangerous. Um, and then on the flip side, uh, I invested in Darwin. That was one of the areas that we, we thought we'd try to dip our foot in, our toe in. Uh, Darwin is also a people magnet. It has a large military base there uh, and, uh, and and obviously proximity to Indonesia and places like that. That property went up from 180000 to 260000 overnight. Right? It was just a fortunate time to buy. And so, great, wow, we are made uh, 40%. Let's take our money and run and invest in something else. And I think for me, that was not a terrible decision because we invest in other things which generally went well. I can't remember how much went to Adelaide, but you know, we invested in other things. It was fine. But the reality is if we'd kept our money there, that would have doubled, you know, in a few years after that, doubled again, right? And 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 so, for me, it it formed a, a hypothesis which I think Warren Buffett has caused. We are lazy investors. We don't buy much, and when we buy, we never sell, right? 
And that's his mindset. Because generally when you sell, if you've bought good assets, you come to regret it. I think for him, for example, he recently sold all his airline stock, you know, all his airline shares shortly before, right at the bottom of the market. And then the airlines kind of went through the roof, you know, and, and so in some ways we, we all struggle with our own advice. But for me, uh, that informed a lot of my strategy, which is try and save up to buy the best assets, the top quartile assets in the class you're going to buy, whether it's property or stocks. And if it is property, like, you know, the, the, the premium areas or the premium parts of the areas you're going to invest in. And ideally, hold on to it, particularly in a place like Australia where there are taxation advantages in doing so. Because generally, if you sell something good, it's going to get better. Uh, and then you've just incurred transaction costs and capital gains and things like that. So those two experiences have helped to shape my investing philosophy now. So far, traversing the property road with more highs than lows, he's extremely aware of the potential curveballs life can throw at him. Hence, he faces these big questions of the future head on. When uh, me and my wife have been married for a few years, uh, when, when your first kid comes along, it kind of gives you some clarity of thinking. And uh, I'd, I'd been, even though I'd been a pretty serious investor, I'd never actually built like a full-on, like kind of full family balance sheet or full family profit and loss statement with kind of five-year, 10-year kind of extrapolations, right? And it's kind of, kind of thing you might think an MBA consultant might do, but never done it, actually. And and the prompting of having our first kid made us think about that. Like, we're like, okay, like, where are we spending our money? Does, are we making the right moves, right? And, and we're very fortunate we both had made very good moves around property, but is it the right thing? And so we built this spreadsheet and we did different scenarios. Okay, if we did this and you, was, you make assumptions about, okay, what's the historical 100-year growth rate of stocks, shares, of property, of apartments, of houses? You know, what's the current interest rate? How might it be? You do some scenario analysis. You can imagine a giant Google spreadsheet on this. We reach kind of a aha moment of, of the following, which is this. Given that we're fortunate to have enough money to cover our expenses, and we're, given that we're fortunate that we have a bunch of you know, investments, some in prop, a lot of property, some in stocks, things like that, we realized that the most logical thing for us to do was to maximize our property investment. Or put differently, invest every dollar we have, don't sit on cash, and number two, maximize the amount of leverage. Go to a mortgage broker and say, hey, we've got all these properties. How much can we borrow? Right. So that, that happened about 2017, 2018 for us. And as a result, we basically maximized what we could borrow, bought as much as we could. We ended up buying, you know, moving a into a bigger family house. We, we borrowed as much as we could for that property and then just sat on it and said, okay, we actually cannot borrow anymore. We're not going to sell anything. So pretty much our next move is when we have to sell something for whatever reason or we're moving country or, you know, you know, I get a job that makes, you know, a bit more money and we can, we can up level that regard. And to me, that has informed, I guess, our family strategy for now. Again, like we're different. We're kind of a young family. We're fortunate to have, you know, capital assets behind us. I think we're very different for our parents. We're very different in 50s and 60s or we're very different depending on how much, you know, margin of safety you have to invest. But for us right now, our, our concept is we maximize the leverage we have. We maximize how much we're, we've, we've bought out. We maximize our time in market, and we don't attempt to time the market. Uh, that's been the aha moment back in 2018 that kind of brought together our our new family investing strategy. You know, with kids added to the mix. Kids are very expensive. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, kids kids bring in like kind of new concept of negative cash flow. Our kids aren't even in school yet. I mean, I can only imagine what's going to happen there. But I think what that philosophy allows us to do is almost prioritize what are the places of in what order will we borrow or sell to kind of like, you know, make up for cash flow deficits, right? Obviously, there'll be surprises. There might be health scares, you know. Eventually, those things will happen. But it helped us perform a coherent philosophy. Again, that'll change again. 
something will change again or we'll learn something new and change it again. But it's been very helpful for me and my wife to kind of, to kind of negotiate, talk, form that philosophy and, and I think it helps make a stronger marriage as well. Fung certainly chooses his battles, especially in terms of the type of property investing strategies he implements. The biggest other thing would be, uh, I mentioned before, these commercial syndicates. So for example, you know, we would build a hotel and again, like you're one of like a hundred people investing or one of a syndicate of people, but that's a different kind of money, a different kind of return where, you know, we put some capital in and then kind of a management company would come and do that and pay dividends and then you can sell your share. So that's been the other kind of vehicle. Uh, you mentioned renovations before. It's important to know what you like and what you don't. We are terrified of renovating. You know, all the things involved in decisions and financing and council approvals, you know, not that it's not frustrating even if you love it, but some people love that stuff. Some people are happy to live in their house and that's a very capital and tax efficient way to do it. We do not desire that at all. Uh, we, we thought about renovating our first house in Silicon Valley. Like, oh, it's a four-bedroom house. Uh, we, we might have a few kids. Are we going to try and make it a fifth bedroom? We went through these renovation plans and concluded we are going to move. And that's exactly what happened. Coming up after the break, Fung lays down the critical difference that separates a man who is great at what he does from a man who is simply good at it. For me, I'll talk about the power of habit. There's a one phrase that stuck with me, which what's the difference between someone who's good and someone who's great at something? The universal truth he wants everyone to realize about the brevity of life. But in the end, like, it's easy to overestimate the locus of how much control we really have. He highlights how the decisions and actions of parents today can powerfully impact the lives of their children tomorrow. And, and not just that, but the mindset they modeled for us around kind of like, hey, like, try stuff, do things. Succeed, fail. Don't just do things because we told you to, but do things because you love it. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. With undeniable gratitude, Fung acknowledges the depth of his parents' impact in his life. He also shares the benefit of reading books and seeking out people who can positively influence him. I think family has been the biggest experience, uh, both through my parents, my wife's parents, uh, their practices. That's been a, a huge influence. I do like to read books, particularly back in my, you know, 25 years ago with my granny, we read a bunch of books on property investment. Some, I forget their name, uh, and some like, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And, you know, Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's right-hand man, he had this concept, I mentioned the concept of renaissance man, uh, you know, this kind of like, hey, when you try and do music and sports and academics, he has a very philosophy, similar philosophy to investing, which is, hey, don't just read about like, hey, I can do stock investing. Try and bring different in- influences on your investing life. So he looks at like, hey, how do engineers solve problems? How do, how do chefs solve problems? You know, he, he tries to bring different influences to understand what psychological mistakes and what advantages people bring. And that's helped him form his, he's now a multi-billionaire in his own right, right, his investing philosophy. And I think that's very similar, you know, in terms of what has influenced me is not just these books on investing, but or these books on mindset, but a broad array of different books and influences and speakers and camps, you know, who, who help forge who I am. Yeah. I mentioned uh, with business school, I'm very, very fortunate that, uh, I've, I've 10 really good friends. Uh, they're all men in this case, uh, where uh, we we were part of the, you know, we mentioned church before, we we're part of the, the Men's Christian Fellowship uh, actually at Stanford. And a lot of us lived together and and we've been in really close touch uh, for the last, I guess, 15 years since I graduated. Uh, we even have a call every week 
uh, every 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 Thursday morning, we, we get together, we we debate ideas, and what we share, or we we talk about the different problems. And sometimes it's family, sometimes it's work, sometimes it's investing. Uh, these are amazing people. I'm very privileged to meet. They're all American, you know, except for me. Some of them are, are, have been extraordinarily successful in investing, some in property, some without. And so those people have been very influential to me. A lot of them, we invest together, we debate ideas together, we share stories together. So that's been another important group for me as well. Without hesitation, Fung relays in an advice that would separate the great from the good. Yeah, I thought about this a lot because, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you asking your guests this question and generally the people who you want to get advice from. You know, I think I, I think it's something a little different, right, which isn't necessarily related to property because, you know, I've already thrown in bits of uh, gratuitous advice throughout the course of this call uh, and hopefully, uh, hopefully folks have picked it up or, or thought about it, rejected it or accepted it. For me, I'll talk about the power of habit. There's a one phrase that stuck with me was, what's the difference between someone who's good and someone who's great at something? And the answer is, it's habit. People who have been able to put something into automatic where it just happens every day. It's Michael Phelps getting up at 4 a.m. to swim every day. And after a while, there's no decision. It's just what is. You know, and I would ask each of your listeners, like, what are your habits and how they serve you? There's a bunch of really interesting books of the topics uh, on this topic. One's called Atomic Habit, which I found particularly helpful. But for me, I guess as I've gotten older, as the demands of my life in work and family have become more loud and acute and more all-consuming, I realize that ultimately my health, my relationships will come down to habits. And for me, it's been about cultivating a small number of habits, which first start as things which are uncomfortable and then also become automatic. I've already mentioned a few of them. Uh, learning how to love running. And believe me, I'm an extremely slow runner. I tell people I run marathons. They go, wow, you're a marathon? I go, yeah, like, like five hours, but I run them. You know, And the reason they're so slow is partly because I'm unfit, but also partly because just I listen to podcasts the whole time. I love running outside and listen to podcasts. And it creates this virtuous cycle of like, oh, it's something I love doing. I get like an endorphin hit. It's hard to do with kids, but as soon as I get the chance, I'll go out and go for a one-hour run and I'll listen to a bunch of podcasts about politics or business or investing or, or real estate, and I, and I love it. That is one habit that served me, right? Another habit is like I found a group of guys and we have a call every week and whoever can make it out of the 10 makes it. Yesterday was three people. You know, Last night was seven people. And to me, it's that habit of accountability, of doing life together. You know, That's a real important habit. For me and my wife, it's about like, what are the new habits given we have like three young kids? And there is a short window between kind of like 8.30 and 9.30 p.m. at night. We've got the two older kids down and the young ones at sleep for now. And for us, we kind of go into our room in the house and we bring snacks and we chat about our day and we watch Netflix. And to me, it's one of those habits that sustain you through, you know, it's a very tough time to be married when you've got three young kids under five, right? Like it's these habits, these things that happen automatically. It's not a decision. It doesn't take organization. It just happens. That is the difference between goodness and greatness, whether you're an Olympic athlete or just folks like us who are trying to be really good to our families and do interesting work. So that'd be the one advice I'd, I'd give to your listeners. Honestly, mulling over what he would have said to himself if he had met himself 10 years ago, Fong voices out clearly in black and white. Uh, probably the same thing I'm saying to myself now. Just like chill out. Chill out. Like it'll be okay. It may not be what you want or what you think you want, but it'll be okay. It might end up being terrible, but it'll be okay, right? And I think people like us and a lot of your listeners, Tyrone, like because we want to have like an owner's mindset, a growth mindset, an owner's mentality, because we want to be accountable, we don't want to be a victim and blame other people. 
we take a lot of responsibility for how things turn out. Will my kids be okay? Will the company be okay? How will this deal go? And you know, that's what I admire. I, I want people like that to work for me. I want to be like that. I want to be that kind of employee. But in the end, like, it's easy to overestimate the locus of how much control we really have. You know, I think, you know, the, the Bible says, like, you know, who are you? You're, you're a gust of wind, a mist of fog that's here today and gone. We, we, we think the world revolves around us, but actually our lives are this amazing adventure that we get to have, privileged to have. And in the end, we will make hopefully a bit of a difference to the world. But what we're left with in the end of our lives and the legacy we leave behind is, do we enjoy our life? Or do we stress the whole time about maybe something that didn't really matter? And so for me, it is the story of my life trying to come to terms, and it's a real act of faith to accept that it'll be what it'll be and it's okay. And I think that's what I would have remind myself every day now and what I'd tell myself 10 years ago as well. With eyes looking straight at what the future may hold, Fong enthusiastically shares what he's most excited about in the next stages of his life. Yeah, I think for me, number one is to be a great husband and a great father, you know, and a great son, a great cousin as well. Like I think the older I get, the more I was like, look, work is important. We care about our work. We're, we're lucky to be in jobs that really matter. But ultimately, if you screw up your family, then it'll be okay in the end, but it'll suck, right? So I think that's where it's number one and, and constantly understanding what are the ways I jeopardize that. I take my work into my family. I don't create good boundaries. I think with work, I'm so excited. Oh, my goodness. I've barely spoken about what I do day to day. But I think one of the big appeals why Australia was so alluring to me was a chance to come back and kind of be a big fish in a small pond. I mean, I said in America, in Silicon Valley, there's tens of thousands of people like me who are running companies, doing great things. And, and that's great. And I, you know, I loved being a part of that. And I was very privileged to be part of that. Here, I'm really grateful that like I'm part of an ecosystem in Australia that's doing great stuff. You know, the kind of people who I get to rub shoulders every day in the property industry, not just my colleagues at Domain, you know, like our head of marketing, head of product, but, you know, people who head up the biggest real estate agency brands in Australia, or, you know, all these names, right? I get to speak with them like every week, every month. I get to hang out with them. I get to understand how I can serve them better. We get to solve problems together. Like, what about Australia's supply crisis? It's like super cool, right? So I think for me, the next few years about having a lot of impact in Australian property, which is such a big deal to Australians. How do we, you know, the domain phrase is inspire confidence in life's property decisions. And that's what we're trying to do, whether you're a seller, a buyer, a seeker. And I get to have a huge influence in that. It's amazing. But also for me, it's a leadership training ground. It's a chance for me to, to step up as a leader, to learn a bunch of skills. I get to lead 500 people. You know, I get to be a, a, a vision in them. I can make a huge difference to their lives and their families. If I screw it up, it's not going to be fun. And if, uh, if I can make their lives and their careers great, that's a huge thing. And they will impact other people in both when they work for me and when they work for someone else. So I think I'm in a really cool spot of having a lot of influence, having a lot of impact, but I'm going to kind of learn a lot as well. Last question for you is how much of your success that you've achieved, not only through just the property, but also your career and stuff, has been due to your skill, intelligence and hard work? And uh, how much of it do you think has been due to luck? Uh, this is kind of the inevitable nature versus nurture debate. Uh, I think... First thing, I, you know, similar software, I'd be nothing without my parents and the choices they made. I'd be nothing. They, they sacrificed a lot so we could go to schools like what we went to. That wasn't cheap. It's more expensive now, but it wasn't cheap. You know, my, my, my parents were not like, you know, they weren't in amazing professions. My dad was an auditor, the real estate agent. My mom was a nurse. It took significant sacrifice. You know, I think for them both, you know, making those decisions to invest in schooling, in this case, a private school, other people go to a public school and invest in other ways. You know, that's, that's amazing, right? And, and not just that, but the mindset they modeled for us around kind of like, hey, like try stuff, do things, succeed, fail. Don't just do things because we told you to, but do things because you love it. I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, I consider luck to have a huge role. 
I mean, if I look back to locus of my life, I was extremely lucky to get into McKinsey. And that thing changed the trajectory of my whole life. You know, it made me think of, I, without that, I probably would have never left Gordon and Pimple. I guess I'm still back here. You know, uh, it, 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 I guess it made me like, no, that, that the world is your oyster. Anything is possible. And here are people who are friends with and, you know, and that, that's what got me working, studying overseas. I consider myself extremely lucky to have gotten to Google at that stage at a company where it was at its infancy. Well, not its infancy, it was 10,000 people, but it was much smaller than it is today. But a company where they believed anything was possible. I came in as a marketeer. They said, hey, why do you lead a team in operations? Say, okay, I did that for a few years. Hey, why do you do sales? It's like, oh, okay, I'll try sales. You led a team of sales of two people, came a team of 50 people. How much that was me? Maybe a little, but really I was in the right place at the right time with the right company. And again, like who knows right, what the path ended up and even in how much was due to my own skill was only due to the luck that I had to learn those skills, the people I had. So I consider myself very lucky and, and I want to cultivate that attitude of gratitude uh, if I can. On the matter of church, Fung is without question not done serving in the mission field and fulfilling his calling. To get to church, I mean, getting three kids or two kids out the door by like, the church services, it is like, oh my goodness, it starts at 7 a.m. and maybe it doesn't even happen, right? So um, I, I think for me, you know, going back to my calling, I, I think part of it has been the own evolution of me of like, hey, look, sometimes church will be part of my life, sometimes it isn't. That doesn't mean that I'm serving, in this case, God, more my view of God, more or less, right? That's just part of a part of a, a, a season and when i was younger there was a big serving season now like my family and my work actually come first that's that's my mission field uh, i think i don't know where it goes one day uh you know i still have a lot of aspirations to serve there i like serving at both that kind of like helping play music and lead groups i really love that but i love the idea of like hey how can i use my board of director type skills to help make wise leadership decisions strategy decisions i imagine that will be the case for me one day i don't know where that is they tell me what you have, and you're a bit older uh, along the, the kid journey than I am, you know, Tyrone. They tell me there's this point where you go, like, oh my goodness, kids are crazy. It's like, they want, they want to have nothing to do with you. And they just want you as a chauffeur, and maybe they'll see you like once a week. Yeah. And then, like, what are you going to do with your time? Because you've spent the whole life, you know, the, the last 10 years looking after them. That point will come. Uh, having just had a third kid, that point has been reset by some years. Uh, but that'll come. And, uh, and for me, I'm trying to take my own advice to just chill out and enjoy the journey. Uh, because uh, one day it'll come and it'll be a certain way and maybe different, I think, and that's okay. So uh, that's what that's what my mission field looks like. Who knows? Thank you to John Fong our guest on this episode of Property Investory.